Hi there, this is Darren Spoo, pastor at First Baptist Church in Tulsa, and welcome to our weekly message podcast. We would invite you to join us in person Sunday morning at 8.30 and 11 o'clock in downtown Tulsa, or check out our webpage at tulsafbc.org. God bless you, and have a great week. So I want to begin where I did last week, and just by acknowledging that Jesus loved stories, and he was a master storyteller. In fact, 45% of the Gospels is Jesus telling stories, and Eugene Peterson put it like this. He said, the stories that Jesus told were narrative time bombs, <laughs> that he would plant these, these stories in our mind and our heart, and they would tick and they would explode, but instead of causing destruction, these narrative time bombs would bring about transformation. They would change the way that we see the world and the way that we understand the world. And, and let me see if I can give you an example of that today. So if you were alive at the time, you remember the World Trade Center attack, the terrorist attack on September 11th, 2001. I think everybody alive remembers where they were when they first heard about that. So as they began to work around, excavate the site around those fallen towers and to build something new there, they discovered about six meters below ground a colonial-era ship. They found a wooden ship buried at the base of the World Trade Center towers, and they were able to study the wood and discover that it came from the same forest this wood did that was used to build Independence Hall in Philadelphia. And so how did this ship, 250 years old, it was built in 1773, how did it get to the base of the World Trade Center towers. Well, when that ship was retired in the 1790s, they were extending the coastline of Manhattan Island. They were wanting to build it out just a bit. So they were looking for every bit of landfill that they could find. And so they took this old retired wooden ship, this Hudson River sloop, and they stuck it in the ground and it's been preserved there for all these years. Now, what does that story have to do with anything other than just being a very interesting piece of trivia? It's this, that sometimes life's greatest tragedies reveal life's deepest treasures. I hope the narrative time bomb just exploded <laughs> because we all know that to be true, don't we? We know that at ground zero of some of life's greatest tragedies, that's where some of the deepest treasures are found. When the first time you lose a friend or a loved one, they die, you realize the value of relationships, and you know the power of life and death. When you face that time when the world just seems cold, but you go home and you have the warmth of family to envelop you, here's one group of people that love you no matter what. It's cold out there, but it's warm in here. You kind of discover that, that incredible treasure. And this is larger in a Christian sense as well. We can't experience the resurrection without first going through the crucifixion. It is in life's greatest tragedies that life's deepest treasures are revealed. So Jesus told these stories. They were narrative time bombs to explode, to renovate, to transform the way that we see and view the world. And what we're doing last week, this week, and next week are really taking Jesus' top three stories, okay? These are the three stories that even if somebody really doesn't know that much about Jesus, they've probably heard or heard about these stories. And the one we're going to look at today is in Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, and I want to set this up just a little bit. 
because this is actually starts with a question somebody asks. This is Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law, and that's important, we'll come to that in a minute, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus, teacher. Now, remember what I said a few weeks ago. In Luke, if somebody called Jesus Lord, that means that they acknowledged there was something messianic about Jesus, okay? They were close to him. If they called him master, they were still trying to make up their mind. But if they called him teacher, then they were kind of on the outside looking in. They weren't sure about this Jesus character yet. Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, what is written in the law, Jesus replied. How do you read it? Now, from his answer, we're about to see that he had either listened to Jesus earlier or he had come to the same conclusion about Jesus concerning this matter independently. Here's what he says, and he's spot on. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Let's pause there for just a moment because in that one small paragraph are really three commands. And I wondered this morning, I'm going to ask you just to do a little inventory of your own, which is the most challenging one for you, okay? For some of us, loving God is the greatest challenge. And here's the big challenge. God is invisible. <laughs> and sometimes it's, it's hard to see Him, touch Him. We, we just don't quite know what to make of Him. So sometimes loving God is a challenge. Or it could be that third command is the most challenging one for you. You say, well, it's love God, love neighbor as you love yourself, okay? Sometimes the relationship we have with ourself is very complicated. Listen, Jesus does not call you to hate yourself, and I hope you're not in that category today. Nor does Jesus call us to be in love with ourselves. Have you ever met somebody who's in love with themselves? Have you ever been the person that's in love with yourself? I wish I could have learned this long before I was 50. But I became more effective in my life when I finally realized that I was not God's gift to the world. That's shocking, I know. <laughs> but when we finally get to that place where we go, I'm not God's gift to the world, that person was Jesus, it's amazing what we began to be able to do. I, I do want to point out one little funny story I ran across of somebody who's in love with themselves. George Garrett, 19-year-old British lad, he changed his name legally. Here's his new legal name. Captain Fantastic, faster than Superman, Spider-Man, Batman, Wolverine, Hulk, and The Flash combined. That's his new name. I don't want to see that monogram. That would be a challenge or in a wedding invitation. So here's somebody who obviously thinks too much about who they are. Right? We're not called to be in love with ourselves or to hate ourselves, but to love ourselves. Or it could be the third one is the greatest challenge for you. Not loving God, not so much your relationship with yourself, but you're loving your neighbor. And this one is, is a challenge because our neighbors are not us. They're different than us. Always, everyone's different than you. And unlike God, they're not invisible. In fact, the problem with people is they are very visible, i.e. irritating sometimes, aren't they? So from this man's response to Jesus... Jesus says, how do you read the law? Jesus goes, it's pretty simple, isn't it? Not easy. Love God. Love others. Love yourself. There you go. You can sum up all the commands of God in those three simple things. 
For this man, I imagine the challenge was loving his neighbor, because look at what he says. He says, uh, Jesus said, do this and you will live, but he wanted to justify himself, and so he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? All right. So, for this man, and we don't know too much about him other than he's a teacher of the law. He was probably a Pharisee, a very strict Jewish sect, and Pharisees believe something like this. Okay? To really be loved by God, you need to be a Jew. All those other people out there, Gentiles, God doesn't love them the way that God loves me. God particularly doesn't love these Romans that are, are bearing down on us. Israel was an occupied nation at the time. And so, don't love the Gentiles, certainly don't love the Romans. And I'm not even required to love the other Jewish sects that I'm not a part of the Sadducees and the Essenes and the Zealots, and, and if they were really loved by God and they really knew God, they would be in the same group I am. So from this man's point of view, do you see it? The great three divides, race, politics, and religion. Those are the three things that oftentimes divide us still today, that it's hard to love people who don't look like us or think like us or believe like us. And what this man was doing is he was trying to take this great command to love God, love neighbor, love self, and to squeeze it into his existing life, to squeeze it into the space that he would give it instead of letting this command renovate the way that he was leaving, living. So here, Jesus, trying to get through to him, tells a story. Verse 30. And we're just going to walk through this for a few minutes this morning. In reply, Jesus said... A man was going from Jerusalem to Jericho, 12-mile road, 3,500 feet. As you go from Jerusalem to Jericho, you're going down in elevation, 3,500 feet, which means that there's a lot of blind corners, crags, caves, a lot of places for people to hide out and rob you if they want to. We all know, and I thought about this morning listing off two or three places in Tulsa, and I'm not doing it because it would offend somebody, Two or three places in Tulsa that we know are not the safest place to be. And so when you're there, you just need to have a little heightened awareness. You need to be careful. That was the Jericho Road, okay? So a man was going from Jerusalem to Jericho. He was attacked by robbers, sure enough. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. That's a great description, verse 30 is, of just sometimes the way the world leaves us at the end of the day, isn't it? Stripped, beaten down, not alive, but just kind of half dead. So a priest, verse 31, he happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. Now, the way I visualize this is the victim is going from Jerusalem to Jericho. The priest is going from Jericho to Jerusalem. He's going to the temple to do what the priests are supposed to do. They're supposed to offer sacrifices to God at the temple, but he can't do that if he renders himself unclean. And one of the ways a priest would become unclean is if he touched a dead body. So here we have a man who is not dead, he's half dead, he looks dead, he could die if I go help him out. And so this priest is thinking, if he dies while I'm helping him out, I'm gonna be unclean and not perform my duty. He really is caught in a tough place of doing what he felt like to be his duty to God, but also what is his responsibility with other people. That's a challenge, isn't it? 
So the next is a Levite, verse 32. So to a Levite, when he came to the place, saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now, I'm not going to speak for the Levite, but I would guess that one of the reasons the Levite didn't stop was because it was a security risk. It had been known to happen on this road before that somebody would pretend to be injured to lure in an unsuspecting victim and rob them when they pulled over to help, right? So this could all be a trap. It could be a ruse. It could be a ploy. And so the Levite really has something to say to our safety-obsessed culture. Listen, if you help other people, there will be times that you will get wounded. There, there's a risk involved in that. It, it will happen. You just have to decide that those times that somebody is helped is worth more than those times that you are hurt. Okay? Now, here's where I want to give you a very interesting textual note. Very recently, there was a brand new manuscript of Luke that was discovered in the sands of Egypt. I mean, this just happened a few months ago. I don't even think this has made most media now. An old copy of Luke found and had some textual differences because this was ancient Greek. There's an extra sentence added in right here, okay? So uh, let me just read the sentence and then we'll evaluate if you think it was actually or part of, of the story Jesus told. It says this, so another man comes upon the severely injured person on the side of the road. Now this is ancient Egypt manuscript. Shocked at the man's condition, he, know, needs, he knows he needs to do something. So he reaches for his cell phone. Isn't this amazing? This is amazing how they wrote this in, in ancient Egypt. He reaches for his cell phone. He snaps a quick selfie of himself with a very serious expression and the other man in the background. Posting the photo on Facebook and Instagram, the man comments, I can't believe people do such a thing. Thoughts and prayers. That's my favorite part, thoughts and prayers. What does that even mean? Thoughts and prayers. I can't believe thoughts and prayers. So he, he clicks send and then walks away, leaving the man on the side of the road. So, okay, y'all didn't laugh at that nearly as hard as the first service did, so something's wrong with you, not me. Okay. And let me also do a little side note here. This was really not an ancient manuscript found in Egypt. For those of you who are irony impaired, don't email me this week. So I want to see the rest of this manuscript because that, that doesn't sound right to me. I don't know, but something seems to be off right there. That's my Oklahoma accent. You like that? Yeah. So isn't that kind of what we do? It's easy to look at the priest and the Levite, but what do we do? We see something bad that happens, so we take a selfie with it and we post it. By the way, that's called slacktivism. And once you've posted about it, you know what you've done? You've done absolutely nothing. The man is still on the side of the road bleeding out, right? but we posted about it. My encouragement is, <laughs> you say it how I tell my kids, put down your dang phone and help somebody out. That probably would be the better thing to do, okay? We, we have a little bit of the, the priest and the Levite in us, don't we? Verse 33, but a Samaritan. Now here's where I think Jesus' listeners would have gasped just a little bit but a Samaritan. In Jesus' day, when somebody really didn't like who he was and what he was doing, here's what they said about Jesus. 
he is either demon-possessed or a Samaritan, implying I'm not sure which one is worse. Okay, that's how people viewed the Samaritans in the day. Clarence Jordan, some of you might remember his name from the 60s. He was a social activist, a Christian, and he also did a translation of the New Testament called the, Gospel, uh, the Cotton Patch Gospels, where he took the stories of Jesus and put them into southern vernacular. And it's here when he tells the story of the Good Samaritan, he's trying to confront white superiority, white racism. So instead of a Samaritan, he puts the N-word right here, the black man stops and helps a white man. After 9-11, when I taught this, just a few months after 9-11, I put a Muslim in the place of the Samaritan. After that Sunday, I got one of the most hateful, racist emails I've ever received in my life. Somebody saying, I can't believe that you would defile the Lord's teaching by putting a Muslim in your story. The only thing I could reply was, you don't really understand this story at all, do you? Jesus puts the last person you would think of in the position of being a hero. So the Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was. He saw him, took pity. And look at what he does, because we're going to unpack this in just a minute. He went to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, which is two days' wages. He gave it to the innkeeper. Look after me, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense that you might have. Notice what the Samaritan does here, and, and I think Jesus in this story is, is being very intentional. He takes out oil, wine, money, and he takes the man to get help. What does, what does the wine represent? The wine was used in those days for medicinal purposes to disinfect wounds. The oil, the oil was there to promote healing. The man gave of his financial resources. I don't know what two days wages is for you, but just factor that out. Imagine giving two full days wages to help somebody out who you don't know. But then most of all, what sticks in me is the man took his time. He gave his time. He probably had business in Jerusalem or Jericho, depending on the way he was going. But all of that stopped as he gave his time to this person he didn't even know. Now, here's what happens at this point. The time bomb is still ticking, and it's beginning to tick down. At the end of this story, there's a small dialogue. Jesus asks a question. The man responds. And then Jesus makes a statement, and it's with this last statement that the detonation takes place. Okay? But each part of the conversation is important. Verse 36, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell victim into the hands of the robbers? Notice what Jesus does here. Please don't miss this. He defines neighbor from the standpoint of the victim. He's not talking about the people walking down the road healthy and saying, you know, who did they see as a neighbor? From the victim's standpoint, who was a neighbor from his point of view? If you haven't discovered this yet, you will. The next time you are in need, the next time your heart is broken, the next time you've been wounded and somebody's left you on the side of the road for dead, 
when somebody comes up to you to help you, that's when you discover, maybe for the very first time, the power of what a neighbor means. Remember what I said? Life's greatest tragedies often reveal life's deepest treasures. And then when you understand, here's what a neighbor really means, when you are not in need and now it's somebody else's turn, not yours, and they're hurting and you step in, you now know how important that is. I believe that people who have been wounded the most make the greatest neighbors because they know what it really means to have somebody there for them. I don't know what's happened to you in your past. I don't know who's hurt you or why, but I know that's one of the ways that God reconciles the pain of our past is that we know what it was like to need somebody, and now we can serve. So who is a neighbor to the person in need? And, and here's where the expert of the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. You know what I see here? He can't pull himself to say the S word, can he? He, he should say the Samaritan, but, but it kind of catches in his throat. He can't, he can't admit that. Again, this detonation is about to take place, but he does a good job in defining what a neighbor does. Mercy. So I want to go back to those four things the Samaritan did. The wine, the oil, the money, the time. And I want to apply it to us. Here's a statement that I read earlier this week, and I didn't know if I agreed with it at first, but, but I'm leaning toward agreeing with this. God will change your heart but God will not change your habits, okay? God will change your heart. If you say, God, I, uh, let me give you a stupid example. God, I really I, I know I need to lose weight. Would you help me, you know, want to lose weight? And then you want to, okay? God can change your heart, but he's not going to change your habits. It's up to you whether or not to put the potato chips down or not, right? He's going to, I got an amen up there. In the, the, <laughs> so, so God will change your heart, but, but changing your habits is up to you. But here's the interesting thing. When we change our habits, that's the, usually the things that help change our heart. So I'm not trying to read too much into this, but I think, you know what, what, what is the wine that we can put on difficult circumstances when people are in need? Listen to me very carefully. There's nothing that disinfects the spirit like prayer. It could be one of the ways that you best serve people in need you might be the only Christian God has put in a particular circumstance, and the only thing you're supposed to do is pray. Do you realize you may be in some situations right now that nobody else is praying about? That's you. So we pray, and we help purify a situation by bringing Christ into the middle of it. Then we pour on oil, and oil promotes healing. You know what I've discovered? My good advice heals nobody. I mean, I think I've got some great advice, by the way. And if people would just listen to me, the world would be a lot better. But my advice usually doesn't heal anybody. You know what's healing to people? Listening. Just to listen to somebody's story. And oftentimes it's the people who come across the most negative that, that have nobody to listen to them and what kind of healing that is. And what you'll also discover is you have a lot more compassion for people once you've heard their story. So there's the oil, there's the wine. Then giving the money, giving the two denarius. 
Now, if, if I could speak to a more affluent church, which we are, uh, we need to be careful of money's not the first stop. <laughs> we see a need, we kind of put some money, and we kind of throw money at it because, hey, you know, I don't have much time, and this will help fix it. And, and there's a time and a place for that. But to pray and to listen first, I think, is more powerful, more important. But then when financial resources is needed, we give it. And here's the one that really sticks with me. The Samaritan, whatever his schedule was that day, stepped aside. And right now, the person in front of him was the most important person in the world. I don't know how many people are in this room right now. I'm bad at guessing, but I, I would guess there's probably five or six thousand of you. That's, that's about, it seems about right, okay? But imagine what this world would be like, what Tulsa would be like this week, if we all left here and said, God, this week I'm going to practice your presence, I'm going to practice the presence of God, but I'm also going to practice the presence of people. Whoever you put in my path, that's who I'm going to serve. And here's where the detonation takes place. Jesus told him at the very end, go and do likewise. The Samaritan probably didn't set out from his house that morning saying, i got to find somebody to serve. I'm going to change the world. He just helped the person in his path. So could I encourage you this week, don't try to change the world. Just change your perspective a little bit. And not only submit your soul to God, but maybe submit your schedule to God as well. And here's what's going to happen. Sometime this week, there's going to be somebody in your path and your first thought is going to be, I need to serve them, and I hate Pastor Darren for saying this on Sunday, okay? You're going to think back to this moment, and you're going to know it, and you're going to know that you know. The only thing I want you to think of at that moment is these last words Jesus said, this narrative time bomb that's ticking, not for this teacher, but for you, and it's going to explode sometime this week, and it's going not to destroy your life, it's going to transform what happens as you serve the person in your path? So, Salvador Dali, the famous artist, here's what he would do. When he would go to a restaurant, he would go to a really fancy, expensive restaurant, and he'd always pay with a check. So, he'd take out a check and write out the full amount for the meal. Then he'd flip the check over, and he would draw on the back of the check. He would do one of his drawings. And he would leave it there, turned upside down, where the, the owner could see the drawing. Because he knew that if the owner knew who he was, and he had this drawing, the owner would never cash that check. <laughs> Isn't that great? Because the drawing was worth more than the cost of the meal. So you know what we learned from that? We learned Salvador Dali was a cheapskate, is what we learned. <laughs> and a genius. But what we really learn is there are some things more valuable than others. There are some things more valuable than money, than our time. There are some things more valuable than not listening or not praying. People in need. So I'll say it from the lips of Jesus. And then it's up to us whether we live it or not this week. But, but as somebody once said, as you have lived, so you have believed. You know, don't tell me what you think you believe. How you're living shows me what you really believe. So here's what Jesus says. Go 
and do likewise. Let's stand together. Let's pray together. Thanks so much for listening to our weekly message podcast. At the end of each worship service on Sunday morning, I offer a simple blessing, and I offer that blessing to you today. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you, and may God grant you peace, both now and forever. Amen.